You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, we are doing this podcast today, if you're listening to it, the day we released it, because it is a special day. Today marks the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe in World War II. Indeed, a very big day. So we thought we'd do a history podcast to celebrate that, and it takes a little bit of the surprise out of this question that I always ask you. It's the title of the podcast, but there is going to be still some surprise because we don't know what part of World War II we're going back to here. At least I don't know. So David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's May the 5th, 1945, and in a small town in Austria, a small group of American soldiers are besieged fighting desperately as a larger SS formation works to overrun them and even as the hours tick by the only question on everyone's mind is when will the reinforcements arrive David things are not going well for these Americans under siege now it's May 5th so just a few days ago It's May 8th, if you're listening to this, on the day we released it. So they're just three days from the end of the war, at least in Europe. But they are in trouble, David. Paint us a picture. So, this is an interesting time. As you've mentioned, the war in Europe is almost over. The Wehrmacht, the German army, is collapsing practically everywhere. As Allied forces advance... The Russians are physically in Berlin. Russian troops have occupied most of the city of Berlin. The American army is spread across southern and western Germany. The British army is mostly more in northwestern Germany. There are Belgian troops. There are French troops who have been raised since their homelands were liberated who are starting to serve as second-line troops for the Allied forces. The German army is not in good shape. The fighting is starting to break down, but that doesn't mean that for everyone the war is over. And if you happen to encounter, if you're an Allied soldier who happens to encounter a group of German troops who want to fight... The weapons have not become less lethal as the war winds down into its final days, and the decisions made at this point will shape the post-war world in a very immediate way, because where troops end up on the ground frequently will influence what the lines of control between different powers will be going forward. So things are bad for the Germans in general, but in this specific case, they're in the stronger position against these Americans? In the immediate case, we're in a small town in Austria, which is an interesting point 
in its own right, actually, I should bring up. Germany and Austria, under the Nazis, were combined into one country, Germany. That was a very important to Hitler in particular because he had been born in Austria. And to him, that helped to validate his German nationalism, that it was all really one country. But that doesn't mean that everyone in Austria agreed with it or felt that way. Famously, Captain von Trapp of the Sound of Music fame fled the country because he was an Austrian patriot who didn't want to work for a German navy, which he felt did not represent him, was not part of his cultural background. Played brilliantly by Christopher Plummer. Wonderful movie. But at the start of the war, that was a relatively unusual political position for people in Austria to hold. There was still a feeling that maybe a merger with Germany might be good economically. Maybe the Nazis wouldn't be so bad. But now, 1945, that feeling has collapsed. The Clearly, there were no economic benefits to Austria of being merged with Germany. They've been bombed. There are Russian troops. There are American troops rushing all over their country. It's a disaster. And from the perspective of many Austrians, this is Germany's fault. This is clearly the fault of the German government. And so they're looking at this and going, maybe, you know, now is the time to rise up to create an Austrian resistance and a new Austrian government for Austria and get rid of the Germans and join the Allies, which is looking like the winning position more and more every day. Yeah, at this point, probably a good time to start thinking about jumping on the Allied bandwagon, if you haven't done it already. So that sort of influences what we're looking at here. The SS troops are fanatical because anyone who is continuing to fight for Germany stationed in Austria, which is increasingly looking like hostile territory, has had to either flee somewhere else, surrender to either the Americans or the Russians, both of whom are getting uncomfortably close, or else become fanatical, defend themselves, and attack outwards at every sign of possible resistance and also every sign of advancing enemy troops. And that's what's bringing down this large organized force of SS troops who are all holding together. They're not splitting up, heading out in small groups because that would be dangerous. And they're trying to wipe out this little group of American soldiers because this group of American soldiers happens to be at a very key point. So what is this key point, David? How do we get to this situation where these Americans are holding this key point and these this large group of SS soldiers are bearing down on them? So let's go back a bit for a second. In 1940, France falls. They're defeated. The famous German Blitzkrieg 
rips across the country and captures effectively all of France. And then later on, in 1943 and 1944, the Germans decide that having an official puppet French government based at Vichy isn't working for them and formally occupy the whole of France. And when they do that, they have to be nervous that all of these elements of the French government that they're taking over will resist, will fight back. And to solve that potential problem, they decide to round up the VIPs of the French political and military world at the time and a bunch of other random celebrities, tennis players, aristocrats, people who might be rallying points for the French resistance. And those whom they successfully round up, they send to Austria to be interned for the duration of the war. And the specific camp that they hold them in is a former Austrian castle that they are using as a prison camp now, basically. The Schloss Itter. So what was life like for a VIP in a castle prison camp during World War II, David? Was this like a country club jail that we talk about now where it's not so bad? Or was this closer to what we've learned about and uh, seen about other German prisoner of war camps? Well, it certainly was intended to be a lot nicer than your average German prisoner of war camp. Actually, one of the unusual elements of the camp, they actually brought in prisoners from a nearby camp for more normal POWs to use as cooks and other service staff in the camp so that the prisoners themselves would have fewer duties looking after themselves than was normal for POWs in the German camp system. And in general, at the beginning of the internment, there were some real efforts by the Germans to try and make this nicer in the hopes that they could win propaganda victories by getting the the various VIPs who were in the camp to publicly support them in one manner or another. But now, in May 1945, things have been getting worse rapidly as things worsen for the population of Europe and of Germany, as food supplies are higher to cu- harder to come by, as transport starts to break down. These problems which everyone is facing are also affecting the camp so any country club uh, status it may once have had in its early days is long gone by the time the allies are actually arriving in the area all right so it's the americans who get here first david and do they free the prisoners of war what happens actually things are weirder than that They always seem to be with these history podcasts. It does seem to be a theme. 
So the first thing that happens is that the Americans reach Dachau, the notorious concentration camp, and the guards who were there, the senior ones, fled before the Americans could arrive because they knew that it was clearly going to be evidence of tons of war crimes that they had committed at the camp. And they fled here to Schloss Itter, both to link up with other SS prison camp guards who they felt they could trust, and also to try and associate themselves with a nicer camp in the hopes that if they got captured here, the Americans might be confused and think that they were, you know, ordinary, innocent prison camp guards rather than concentration camp guards, which is obviously a lot worse. So the Germans have run to this nicer prison camp to try and avoid being associated with the worst one when it comes time to uh, dole out punishment at the end of the war. Exactly. And while they're there, under somewhat mysterious circumstances, the former head of the Dachau concentration camp either commits suicide or else has some form of an accident with a firearm or many historians suspect possibly was murdered, although it's not 100% clear by whom. I can't imagine he would have been a very nice guy who was popular and beloved. No. So he winds up dead, and the guards at the camp are now nervous because the Americans are about to arrive. They're nervous because there's just been this mysterious death. There's rumors that it was resistance fighters who did it, that they might be planning to raid the camp or something. So the guards decide to leave. Well before any Allied troops arrive, they're going to pack up and go and hope that they can maybe disguise themselves as civilians or whatever else they intend to do. So does this leave the camp completely undefended, David? Exactly. The Germans are gone. The French prisoners search the remains of the guard area and actually find a few firearms that sloppy German prison guards fleeing the castle have left behind accidentally and form their own protection group to try and defend the castle. But they know that they don't have a lot of weapons, obviously, because they've just got what's been accidentally left behind, and that this area is increasingly becoming dangerous as the uh, control of the Nazi regime breaks down. So they decide to send out a messenger to link up with the American troops they've heard rumors are somewhere west and see if he can bring a rescue force back quickly. So how does this go, David? Uh, Who do they choose and is the mission to uh, send the messenger out successful? So they choose a cook. One of the prisoners of war who I've mentioned earlier were brought in to be the service personnel at this camp is a Yugoslavian former resistance member who'd been captured who speaks good German, which is why they pick him, 
They're hoping that he'll be able to disguise himself as a civilian and make his way through any German lines, which may still be around. Smart thinking. He doesn't speak English, which is a problem, but they don't actually have a lot of people who do. So one of the few French VIPs who has reasonably good English writes a note to the any American officer this guy can find. They give him the note, and he heads west to try and find an American officer and get help. And a couple of days go by, and inside the camp, insofar as they know, nothing's happened. As it happens, actually, this messenger surprisingly, has managed to slip all the way to an American unit. The American unit then attempted a rescue mission to punch its way to Castle Itter quickly, but they ended up getting countermanded by American High Command because it was the wrong unit. A different unit was already planned to advance into the area. And High Command is worried about friendly fire incidents at this point, as artillery use is very common, and people are jumpy with the war appearing to come to a close. So the initial rescue unit is ordered to turn back so that a different rescue unit can be sent from the 36th Division. But that slows things down, and while that's happening in the camp they start to hear about an SS unit still intact and fighting for Germany approaching the area, and obviously, they're very nervous. What a remarkable story this has been already, David. You tend to forget just how many small stories of heroism there are within such a large war. Just this Yugoslavian resistance fighter turned into a prisoner of war camp cook who disguises himself, sneaks through German lines, and brings the message to the Americans to try to rescue his fellow prisoners. That must have taken an amazing amount of bravery and is quite a remarkable story that almost just becomes a footnote in the larger story of this battle that we're talking about. And then that's a footnote within the larger story of World War II. But the individual heroism really stands out. It really can be astounding. And as it happens... After, from the perspective of those inside the camp, the last messenger they sent out just vanished with no response, no contact back. They actually send out another volunteer from the same service staff, check this time, who goes out with another message because, as I've said, they've heard that the SS are advancing and... They're looking for any help they can get now. And his message will reach a slightly closer, somewhat friendly military officer. But he won't be American. Okay, so the prisoners inside the camp are worried because this SS group they've heard about is bearing down on them. Meanwhile, the Americans have a plan to get there. And the second messenger has reached another officer. David, is all this going to come together? I mean, once everyone in the region is heading for Castle Itter, what else can it do but come together? We have an inevitable collision coming at Castle Itter. 
who was the other officer that the second messenger, the Czech volunteer, reached? So this was Major Sepp Gangel. He was a former officer of the Wehrmacht who, when things started going bad in Austria, rather than retreating or surrendering, had made the bold decision to join the Austrian resistance along with a good number of his troops, his former Wehrmacht troops, and they had been raising an Austrian resistance unit with these former German soldiers as its core up until this point. So he decides he's going to lead his mostly former Wehrmacht troops to help defend this former internment camp now under the control of a group of French VIPs and try and hold off the SS attack that everyone knows is coming. So the SS are bearing down on Kasselitter. Now an Austrian resistance group made up of former German army soldiers is coming to the rescue of Kasselitter. And we still have the Americans, David. What progress are they making? Has High Command got the right unit moving into the area now? So 36th Division has received the message, but divisions are big and slow, and they know that this is an urgent message. So the commands go down the unit to smaller and smaller units until the orders reach Captain Jack Lee. He's commanding four Sherman tanks and about a company's worth of infantry. And they're lighter, faster, and more mobile than these larger units that were initially contacted. And they're ordered to rush ahead, reach Castle Itter, find out what's going on, and report back. And being good soldiers, I assume that's what they do? That's exactly what they do, which is how... Jack Lee ends up reaching Castle Itter in time to find out that it's occupied by what, as far as he can tell, are Wehrmacht soldiers. And he's initially about to report this back when, shockingly, well, actually not so shockingly for May 5th, one of those soldiers comes out with a white flag. What is shocking is that he doesn't want to surrender Instead, he explains that there are Austrian resistance, that there is an SS attack force coming, and he asks that the Americans help them hold the castle and call for any reinforcements that can arrive so that they can survive the night. Is this unusual, David, to have a group of what appear to be German soldiers asking the Americans to partner with them? This is unprecedented. There is effectively no other case in the entirety of the Second World War where you can point to it and be like, yes, that's a real unit of American soldiers working with a unit of the Wehrmacht to fight another group of German soldiers. That's just very bizarre. So it's the only time that Germans and Americans teamed up 
in World War II to fight other Germans, does this bring us to the inevitable battle, David, the inevitable collision of these three forces? It does. The SS arrive intending to seize the camp and find out that it's being defended. It's being defended by the Austrian resistance volunteers and the professional Wehrmacht soldiers under Major Gangl. It's being defended by four American Sherman tanks and, as I've said, roughly a company's worth of American GIs under Captain Jack Lee. And it's being defended by all of the Frenchmen who can find a rifle to carry, including two former prime ministers of France, two former commanders-in-chief of the French army, and a variety of other French celebrities, political and military figures who happen to be interned there and are ready to take up arms to defend themselves. You mentioned the Yugoslavian and the Czech before who volunteered to go out and take the messages, David. Are there other nationalities among the prisoners uh, who are joining in this fight? Well, that can be a more difficult question to answer than you would think, mostly because the prisoners in the service group at this castle were mostly Yugoslavian. There were a number of Yugoslavian prisoners taken. But of course, Yugoslavia has since broken up. And at the time, they would have been recorded as Yugoslavian. So I really can't tell you whether they were Bosnian or Croatian or from Kosovar or whatever other group, but certainly there were a number of them present who deserve to be remembered. So David, what's going to happen? We've got this somewhat motley group of the Americans plus their various allies, former former German soldiers, Yugoslavians, French prime ministers, etc., etc. Are they going to be able to hold out or are they doomed to be overrun by these fanatical SS soldiers? Well, at the beginning, Things look, I mean, bad, very bad. They're outnumbered. The SS just keep coming. At first, it's the Sherman tanks that are the key advantage that the defendants have at Castle Itter, as they're able to suppress much larger numbers of SS infantry when they don't have any anti-tank weapons. But then the SS brings up one of the famed and feared German 88s, heavy artillery specifically built to kill tanks. It knocks out one of the Shermans, although thankfully the entire crew survives. But the other Shermans are forced to retreat, and it looks like with this new anti-tank artillery, the SS are going to overrun the fortress. Things look so bad that... Jack Lee actually allows one of the Frenchmen to attempt to make a break to American lines to get some urgency into the American relief effort that they know is coming. He's a French tennis star, as it happens, and he actually does make it over the wall and to American lines, but as it happens, 
that's mostly irrelevant because the American forces who are advancing in the area, hearing the gunfire and knowing that they had a small element at Castle Itter that was clearly now in trouble, rush forward in larger numbers. And on the morning of May 5th, 1945, are able to overrun this SS force and force it to surrender, ending the battle for Castle Itter. David, you could imagine the relief of the Americans to see the rest of the army coming to rescue them, but even more so the prisoners who have been stuck in this camp for the entirety of the war so far to finally have the American army rushing in to rescue them from this SS force that really threatened to overrun them. Absolutely. So, David, it's now the morning of May 5th, just three days before victory in Europe. Is this going to be basically the end of the war for these combatants? It is, but the end of the war doesn't mean the end of the work. Captain Jack Lee will be moving through various towns in Austria, occupying them, yes, making sure that they're not held by German troops or SS fanatics, but also just tallying up as a reconnaissance officer just what the American occupation forces are going to have to deal with in terms of relief work, trying to look after all of the civilians who have been terrified during the fighting which has raged over the country at this point. And most of the other members of the little motley alliance which held Castle Itter will either be heading back to their homes to do the hard work of rebuilding a continent which had been shattered by six years of devastating war, or else will be working with the Americans trying to make sure that there's no resurgence of Nazism in Germany and Austria. So as victory in Europe Day dawns, David, May 8th, what is the enormity of this day and what this means after so many years of fighting in World War II? Well, VE Day means a lot of things to a lot of different people. For many on the front lines, it's relief, relief that it's over relief that they're not going to die in this righteous cause, which, even a righteous cause, you would prefer to live for rather than to die for. For civilians, it's frequently food that matters. The continent of Europe practically is starving as the mismanagement under Nazi Germany coupled with six years of war, as I've already mentioned, has shattered food supply lines across the continent, making sure that this new state of affairs will allow American relief efforts to bring food to starving populations is absolutely the most vital thing. And VE Day means that that is now possible on a scale that previously it had not been. And 
across the world, VE Day is a cause for celebration for allied populations who see a light at the end of the tunnel, even forces that are looking at the war against Japan as their next big priority. The intense relief that Nazi Germany will not be a continuing threat while that war is prosecuted leads to outpourings of emotion, many of them wonderful and positive, and a few of them, like the Canadian Navy in Halifax, which rioted for two days. Well, sometimes celebration can be ugly, but it speaks to the power of the emotions that are being unleashed here. All of it 75 years ago today, the end of World War II on the European front, David, thanks for telling us this story. I'm deeply happy to have been able to share it with you, Neil. And we want you to share with us too. Let us know your thoughts. Tell us your stories. If you're on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, you can find us at WhenArtThou. We'd love to hear what you think on this day, this anniversary, or any time, really. So give us a shout. David, we always like to end with a quiz. How do you feel about code names hit me all right i've noticed that a lot of code names are derived from place names but because you want a code name to not be obvious those place names are never actually near where the operation takes place so i have a list of code names here that are named after places your job is to guess where they actually took place all right we'll start with a fairly easy one david Operation Market Garden didn't take place in a market garden. Where did it take place? I have no knowledge of whether Arnhem in the Netherlands had a market garden or not, but I take your point. You're right. UK and US operation in the Netherlands to cross the Lower Rhine. This is a Nazi operation, David. Operation Berlin in 1941. Where did it take place? 1941. Operation Berlin. Huh. I'm not sure. But since 1941 was the year of the German invasion of Russia, I'll guess that it occurred in Russia. Really good guess, David. You're forgetting the other half of what Nazi Germany was up to in 1941, which was the war in the Atlantic. This is actually where it took place, an Atlantic cruise. Ah. Next question, David. An American operation, Operation Chicago, didn't take place at Wrigley Field. Operation Chicago. Huh. All right. I've really got no idea for this one. Thinking about where... U.S. troops were most likely to be active in formally defined operations in the Second World War. I'm, of course, thinking of France, but also North Africa. I'll go with France. You're right, David. This was an Allied airdrop operation in Normandy. Another U.S. operation, David. Operation Matterhorn in 1944 did not take place anywhere near the Swiss Alps. Operation Matterhorn. 
1944. Ooh, that's a tricky one. I'll guess that it took place in Italy. Good guess, David. This one was actually all the way in the Far East in China. It was the establishment of bases for U.S. B-29 bomber aircraft. One last one for you, David. Operation Uranus in 1942. Where did that take place? It wasn't in outer space. I'll give you that hint. No, but as I recall, the Russian army preferred planet-based code names. So I'll guess that it took place in Russia. You're right, David. It was the successful Russian encirclement of the German 6th Army in Stalingrad, Operation Uranus, in 1942. Good job, David, connecting all of these places to where they actually happened. An interesting one to try and logic out where they might have occurred when I didn't have all of the code names memorized. Thanks for playing, and thanks for listening. <laughs>